Welcome everyone to The Lighthouse, a podcast series dedicated to providing advanced financial planning and wellness insights to the clients and families we serve. My name is Jack Butler and my business partner, John Stanford, and I lead the Hatteras Wealth Manager Group at UBS. Today, I'm joined by Leslie Falconio, Senior Fixed Income Strategist at UBS, who shares with us her views on many of the questions that clients have been asking us, notably the disconnect between markets, how well they've been doing versus the backdrop of the pandemic and political environment. She talks about the impact that the stimulus is going to have on inflation and budget deficits. She's going to talk about the longer term projections for markets and fixed income, and also focusing on the reopening trend as well. If you have any questions about anything that me and Leslie have discussed today, please feel free to give John or myself a call and we'll relay those questions over to Leslie and her team. Otherwise, I hope you enjoy the show. Leslie, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, we're glad to have you. And uh, we certainly look forward to hearing your comments here in just a second. But to start us off, Leslie, just wanted to know if you could share with us a brief background of your role here at UBS and how it fits into the firm's intellectual capital that we provide clients. Yeah, absolutely. I've been at UBS for almost seven years, and I do the, the taxable fixed income asset allocation. You know, my background actually was in portfolio management. I spent several years as a portfolio manager, both on the mutual fund side and then about 10 years as a portfolio manager on the hedge fund side of the business. So a lot of what I work on with my colleagues and CIO is really coming up with just an, a tactical strategy that is that we consider one that clients can implement. So we give our house view outlook and we try to guide our clients in terms of our view, you know, over the, the short and longer term, and more importantly, how to implement those ideas. Perfect. And uh, you've been such an invaluable resource for us here. And we greatly um, uh, look forward to your content whenever you come out with it. But also just want to get your opinion on one of the top questions that we've been hearing from clients recently. And that's just with respect to all the negative news that we've been inundated with here. Uh, with respect to the pandemic, the impact it's had on the economy, the political environment, and just the market just continues to seem like it's going higher and higher. Are things too good to be true in that regard? And what's going on with uh, that disconnect seemingly? Well, you're right. I mean, there, there's been a really large dislocation when you think about what's happened with COVID and a global shutdown of the economy. Between that and the performance or relative value or the you know, double digital returns that we've seen in the equity markets in 2020 and even in some areas of the fixed income sector. However, you know, there's there's been a few important, you know, notable events outside of COVID that have really been a great tailwind to performance. And and one of them being, as we all know, this fiscal and monetary stimulus. I mean, we could we could say that in you know 2020, given those what we call these exogenous shocks that occurred in March, and there, don't forget there was two of them. There was one in regards to COVID, and the second one was this commodity price war that really impacted the commodity and energy sector. So because of that, we saw you know the largest, the, sort of the quickest decline in what we call GDP was down about three percent, but we also saw one of the quickest recoveries. So. We went very quickly into recession, but we came very quickly out of it. And that reason is because we've had such a strong backdrop in monetary and fiscal stimulus. You know, the Fed acted very quickly in terms of lowering interest rates. Fiscal stimulus package was was very quickly to also be implemented. And one of the things that really differentiates sort of this time around versus what we call the great financial crisis back, you know, starting in, you know, starting in 2008, but really in like 2009, 2010, 
is how quickly the monetary and fiscal stimulus reacted. And as we all know, today's environment and what's happened the past year is not similar to the great financial crisis because it has nothing to do with leverage. It has nothing to do with household balance sheets being poor. You know, it has nothing to do with poor underwriting standards. This is an event that really was no one's fault. And that's why the, both the Fed and the government reacted very quickly to really help lift those financial assets for both in equity and fixed income. And that's obviously been uh, such a, we can't under, underestimate just how significant that stimulus has been in the, the tune of trillions of dollars. So really the natural question then becomes, you know, what does that do for valuations at this point? Is it all artificially propped up because of what the Fed and Congress has been doing? Uh, can you just spend a couple of minutes talking about valuations and if in any way there's are any uh, bubbles out there in the foreseeable future? Yes. I mean, you know, descriptions such as bubbles or irrational exuberance has been, you know, highlighted in the media, you know, recently, you know, you know, very strongly. And look, there's no question that the Fed providing liquidity as quickly as it did in March and starting in March of 2020 was key. It was it was necessary. It was necessary for individuals to be able to access credit. It was it's, it was necessary for companies that experienced, you know, that were on a, you know, sort of what we call a very strong negative impact because of COVID, whether or not you're an auto, a rental auto company or an airline that needed that access to borrow. So of course, the Fed's liquidity, providing liquidity that quickly, you know, was something that played a part in terms of a necessity, but also did obviously keep interest rates very low. So in keeping interest rates low, that's been a very large part of what we call this, you know, continued strength in the equity market. You know, Borrowing, being able to borrow at low levels of interest interest rates is key to these corporations. So when people like to say bubbles and, and like I said, irrational exuberance, now there's no question that there's certain areas of equity and fixed income for that matter that we would consider frothy. We wouldn't call them bubbles. But they are what we call, you know, you see it all the time, whether it's a Tesla or you see what's happening with SPACs and, you know, all these kinds of things that that are getting all, a lot of this headline notice. But note, our opinion is that we, we do feel very strongly. We know we have another fiscal stimulus coming on the way. You know, we don't know the exact size yet, but, but it's, we feel very confident that another stimulus will be happening. And we just had a fiscal stimulus in the first week of December. And we also believe that interest rates will stay relatively low and the Fed will not be restrictive to the economy, meaning that they're not going to push interest rates higher anywhere in the near term because they want the consumer to be able to borrow. They want companies to be able to borrow. So although there are areas of the both equity and fixed income that look what we would call frothy, it's not a bubble mm -hmm. in our opinion. Well, and to your point about frothiness versus bubbles, it sounds like it's more isolated, whether it's Tesla or GameStop or Bitcoin or those specific areas of the overall market rather than a systemic underlying issue. Is that kind of your point what you were? That's absolutely correct. I mean, again, I mean, the the accommodation of the fiscal and monetary stimulus that we've seen need is was necessary and it remains necessary. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I mean, although the economy will improve in the second half, you know, this is a recovery, not a boom. So therefore, we think that that accommodation of loose Fed and fiscal stimulus will continue for the near future. That's encouraging. And, and you bring up the, the stimulus component as well. And obviously, the natural question really kind of comes into then two forms from clients about what is the impact that this is going to have on inflation going forward? How do you foresee that, that panning out in the foreseeable future? 
Well, this has been this has been a very big topic of discussion, and as we all know, you know, you know, people have been talking about inflation for quite some time, and it's yet yet to actually materialize. And one of the reasons, or some of the reasons, why it hasn't materialized is number one, you know, we the U.S. has an aging population, right? The you know all of the baby boomers are aging, and when you age, you have a tendency to save, not spend. And the second thing, as we know, is that you know technology. You know, you walk into an airport, you know, you don't, or you, you don't have those, or self-checkout. You don't have those people behind the counter as much anymore. So those, those structural changes are permanent, and they're going to stay in place. With that said, because the Fed has made really a spotlight and a concerted effort to see inflation rise, we do think inflation rises. But it, you really need to take that into perspective, because it's rising from a very low base. You don't need to be concerned about inflation. You don't need to be concerned about hyperinflation. But inflation will rise going forward simply because when we think about well, all of this COVID, COVID and all this shutdown, the savings rate is at all times high for the consumer. It's like, you know, 15 to 17 percent. People haven't been able to go out and go out to a restaurant, travel. They haven't been able to spend. So as the economy reopens, you know, obviously those, you know, individuals, families will get, will go on vacation, they'll start spending a little bit more. So that will have an, you know, a rise in inflation. But to, but to the point, this is not something that is a point of concern. It's not something that we believe will be a headwind to equity or fixed income because you're coming from a very low base. But, but it is something that given what's happened with COVID and all that savings, consumer spending will rise as the economy naturally reopens during the second half of 21. Mm -hmm. That's encouraging as well, because you talk about hyperinflation. I actually, in my office, have this this picture frame of uh, four different notes of Zimbabwe dollars, but they total (laughs) 326 million Zimbabwe dollars. And so people you know, they might look at all of this spending that we've been doing and the trillions of dollars that have been pumped in the system and they naturally conclude that that's where we're heading eventually. But it sounds like to your point, that's not really of a concern uh, at this stage, not even close. No, and actually, you know, to be honest with the Fed, it would be welcomed. That's why yeah. they would, they, that's why the Fed implemented what we called average inflation targeting. They want inflation to run, to rise, right? It's been a, it's been a point of concern for a very long time. You know, we, we need a bit of inflation, but again, to the point, this isn't something that's going to be hyperinflation or erode your assets, but it will rise as it should. Mm-hmm. So to kind of summarize that uh, for clients who are listening, don't worry about uh, double digit interest rates in your mortgages anytime again soon. Uh, at least that's uh, that's what we're hearing uh, here first. So, uh, and then beyond that, the other question that clients then naturally wonder about is the impact that this is going to have on the budget deficit. And what that's going to mean for our economy overall going forward? Um, can you just give us uh, an insight as to what you're thinking in that regard? Yeah, I mean, listen, you know, to be very straightforward, as we all know, the U.S. has a very large deficit, right? And the U.S. will continue to have a very large deficit. And it's not as though we think the deficit's going to be, you know, coming down anytime soon. We have a new fiscal stimulus package coming. However, when it comes to the viewpoint of the economy and how they look at the economy, that's first and foremost. So I'm not saying that we should ignore the deficit. We shouldn't. Um, you know, it has a large impact on the dollar. You know, one of the, we think that the dollar, we're, we're slightly dollar bearish, right? Quote, unquote, which means that we think the dollar comes down. And one of the reasons, or two of the reasons, is we have what's called a twin deficit. We have a trade deficit and we have a budget deficit. But for the point of monetary or fiscal side, the deficit just is not on the forefront right now. 
right? It's, it's the economy, it's jobs, it's solvency. It's getting things back on the footing to what we call somewhat normalcy. That's really the key thing now. And it's not that the deficit should be ignored, but it's also, we should point out that the interest that they're paying on this deficit is very low, right? Because interest rates are low. So when you talk about, so when you go and you take out a loan, you have to pay that interest rate, right? But because, you know, the interest rates have been so low, it's manageable for the government to pay this interest. So although it's, you should, again, you shouldn't ignore it, but it's just not one of the top things that, that investors should be concerned with right now. And I don't mean, I'm not saying that we should just kick the can down the road, but the economy, solvency, jobs are just much more on the forefront. And we don't see this deficit being a large catalyst, but it is something they will have to contend with down the road. Of course. And um, the other thing you've mentioned is uh, the impact of the dollar coming down. Could you just explain what exactly that means and how that impacts various asset classes uh, for investors who may be listening to this? Sure. I mean, for those that that follow the dollar, like during the COVID time, right, the dollar is considered a safe haven. The U.S. is a very strong economy. So when you have these sort of what we call these fat tele events, if you will, people go to the U.S. dollar. And so, so therefore, the dollar rises between that and the euro, that and the yen, or whatever it may be, right? So that's a safe haven. As the economy starts to recover, right, and and we have sort of what we call these deficits, the dollar will come down, starts to come down a bit because it a becomes too expensive in terms of the safe haven allocation, and also and also because when we we have to look at yields in terms of how it correlates to the dollar. So when we so when we say dollar bearish. What we mean is that if we looked at, say, like the dollar euro, for example, we think the dollar will come down versus the euro, you know, marginally, right? So, and part of this is because we do, we do have these twin deficits, you know, and secondarily, partly it's because when we look at different regions, such as Europe, right? Europe doesn't have the ability to implement fiscal stimulus as quickly as we do, right? We have one government, they have several. Europe was was actually had multiple sort of restrictions than, than we had in terms of COVID recently that we haven't had. So when you think about the outlook of a growing economy, I mean, Europe in the second half would be one of those potentials. But overall in the dollar, I mean, again, we're not expecting a large move, but we do think the dollar will come down just because it was such a point of a safe haven during these exogenous shocks. That's extremely helpful. And uh, the other question that comes to mind, from clients is that we had a very strong 2019 in the S&P. We then had a close to an 18% gain in the S&P for 2020 following the pandemic and the political environment that we uh, all went through here recently. So for a lot of clients, and I think you addressed very well the fact that we're not necessarily in a bubble at this point, but there tends to be a tendency to want to hold on to a lot of cash right now and wait for things to get worse again or wait for buying opportunities. And could you just talk more about cash on the sidelines and how investors can go about thinking about navigating an environment like this on the backs of two really strong years in the overall market or S&P, despite everything else that's happened here recently. Right. Well, let me first say that, again, our view, and this is this is very important in terms of the amount of cash you want to hold and say things like the equity market, which, by the way, you know, we have a preferred allocation equity. We like equity over fixed income. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that we do have a lot of stimulus monetary and fiscal. And we think that continues. We also believe interest rates stay relatively low, which is very good for the equity markets and returns and low borrowing costs. So all those things we believe will will remain in play. Now, that doesn't mean that you're not going to have pockets of vulnerability. To your point, we've had some really great returns in the equity market the past several years and during a, a time of pandemic. 
And as we as we explained in you know in our first question of the conversation, a lot of this recovery had to do with the stimulus that we think stays intact. When I say pockets of vulnerability, you know, we are in the winter months of say, you know, the Northeast. There, there might be these, these intermittent headline risks and sort of uh, potential shutdowns. But from a person trying to time when to get into the equity market, it's really difficult. So you would have to get into that pullback and have the right timing and have the equity market go back up. That's not an easy thing to do besides costly. So that's why we say, you know, it's you shouldn't just wait and hold cash on the sidelines versus, versus investing. First of all, the equity market has done much better than cash, you know, over longer term for since, you know, the 1920s. Secondarily, people should hold cash or that amount of cash depending on their portfolio. You know, we all we often refer to what we call wealth way and you have the liquidity portion of your portfolio that you may need. You may need cash. You might have a short-term expense. You might be you're paying for a wedding or you're buying a house, whatever it might be. You should have that portion in liquid cash or a cash alternative. But for your core investments, you know, keeping in cash does not only cost you in terms of total return, but as I said, it's really difficult to climb to to really time the market. So when you say wait for a pullback, you know, it sounds very easy, but it's actually difficult to do. And if you're a longer term investor, you're much better in the equity market than you are in cash. Yeah, absolutely. And we we couldn't agree more. And um, that also brings us to another segment of the market, which is really kind of more your wheelhouse with respect to fixed income. And we've you know seen just historically low yields here the past uh, several years. And uh, how can investors navigate this uh, th- this environment that we're seeing in fixed income currently? Yeah, listen. You know the fixed income sector. You know, first thing you know that I think first thing that what people have to do to to our distant point of our conversations in both sectors, manage your expectations. We don't always think we're going to get a twenty percent return in the equity market. We're not. We're not thinking we're going to get a ten eleven percent return in fixed income this year. You need to manage your expectations about, you know, really what the returns will come in this year after not only historical outperformance, you know, incredibly good outperformance, but also too, you know, as the economy starts to reopen, you know, in the latter part of 21, going into 22, 2022, you're not going to keep getting fiscal stimulus, fiscal, sti- I mean, there'll be a point where they start to pull back as the economy starts to reopen. So within the fixed income sector, I mean, we are looking for, it's going to be this really delicate balance between yield and capital preservation, meaning you want to protect your principal. So when you think about what interest rates have done these over the past decade, interest rates have come down, right? So you've had this large decline in interest rates. Interest rates go down, prices go up. You've had this really great tailwind of total return. Well, that's shifting. And when I say shifting is that we expect interest rates to move higher not in a huge magnitude in, in 2021, because again, there's a lot of healing that needs to be done. But more than more than likely, given how low interest rates were in 2020, interest rates will rise. So therefore, that tailwind of declining interest rates and rising and rising prices is going to reverse. So interest rates are going to go up, prices will come down. And how you compensate for that is yield, is carry. That's that's what fixed income products are for. Now, there's a delicate balance between those two. And what we, we're recommending is what we call almost a barbell approach. And a barbell approach means that you take things like, you know, the certain sectors that maybe didn't do as well in 2020. Senior loans is a floating rate type of asset. 
right? Floating rate assets in 2020 didn't do that well because interest rates were coming down, right? No one wanted a floating rate. Now, as interest rates rise, that sector is gaining much more attention. It's getting much more inflows in terms of, you know, funds and ETFs because of its floating rate nature and because the economy is recovering. So you can get anywhere from four to four to 5% yield in that without taking out a lot of interest rate risk. And you also should have part of that longer part for those that have a larger equity portfolio, you know, as what we call that hedge, just in case to our conversations that we've had before, you know, the economy doesn't recover as quickly. We have these setbacks and you want to protect yourself against a possible equity decline is that you have these longer interest rate type, type of uh, assets, whether it's treasuries or whatever it might be as a hedge. But we really, in terms of today's marketplace, the U.S., U.S. fixed income opportunity set is narrow. Where the better opportunity is, is to diversify your region and go into things like emerging market. Emerging market sovereigns and emerging market fixed income is a sector that we are we have preferred on. It's diversified. We are seeing recovering energy. As I mentioned earlier, we think the dollar goes down. And you have the ability to earn 4 to 5% in, in carry in an asset class that we really feel is fairly well protected. So the U.S. opportunity set in fixed income is narrow, so you need to diversify your region. And that's one of the reasons why we also like EM fixed income. Yeah, that's a great point, not only on the fixed income side, but on the topic of diversification, we look at the S&P run that we've had over the last decade, and it's just been uh, really remarkable to say the least, predominantly being led by U.S. uh, big tech growth companies, if you will. So what are your expectations for market returns going forward? And if you wouldn't mind just sharing with us some insights as to what you see, not only domestically, but also internationally as well. Well, I mean, to your point, we have had things like growth, you know, you know, and tech tech companies really be on the forefront this year. And although that, you know, we think they will do well when it comes to actually, you know, diversifying in regions, you know, we do have a preference, more of a preference towards things like EM equity that lagged the U.S. this year, that, that did have bouts of, you know, a slower recovery. But again, given our views that interest rates just rise mildly, we have the dollar come down a little bit. Those EM diversification type sectors are really those that we feel opportunistically offer better relative value than, say, the U.S. When we look at the U.S., right, because we've had, again, not a bubble, but we're full, right? We, we consider, we consider, you know, the the outlook for equity, you know, to be total return-wise up 5 6%. You know, this isn't going to be one of these better years that we're going to get continuous double-digit total returns, but we do think they'll be respectable. And one of the things that we look at and we're asked a lot are things like value versus growth. Now, value, right? The major- those are things like financials, financial stocks, you know, banks. In 2020, as interest rates came down, obviously sectors such as those will con- underperform the broader index. And they do that because, as we know, banks have these large deposits and they want to take those deposits and invest along what we would call the yield curve. Right, and try and earn that net interest margin. When interest rates are low and the yield curve is very flat, it's very difficult for them to do that. So, you know, things like value or financials have a tendency to do better when interest rates rise, right? And, you know, you have what we call this upward sloping yield curve, meaning that those in the longer end of the yield curve, that's a 10 year and a 30 year yield, are much higher than what you see in the short end, like a two year. And that gives you the bank's ability to, here, here we go, I have this deposit and I can invest a long curve at much higher yield. So, so it, they earn what's called a net interest margin. 
Now, that is one of the assets that we classes that we think will do better in, in 2021 as the economy recovers, as yields slightly rise. But opportunistically, to your point, diversification, particularly in EM, we think will be very strong both on the fixed income side and on the equity side. That's encouraging to hear because as we've all experienced, you know, S&P over the last several decades has annualized about 8% a year. Recently, it's been 12 or 13%. And I think it's just important to hear that as a reminder that things and, and trends like that don't tend to happen indefinitely. There tends to be a reversion to the mean. And so I think that's uh, encouraging to know, especially as rates will eventually rise and as the economy reopens those sectors of the market, like you said, value in emerging markets, we can really start to see lifting off again. So that's, uh, that's very important. And then looking kind of longer term in the decade ahead, uh, what are some of the, the major themes that the firm is thinking about with respects to not only the impact that, that COVID and the pandemic is going to have on markets and the economy for the foreseeable future, but just overall longer term themes that we're watching for and how can investors take advantage of those opportunities? Well, I mean, you know, one of the things that we, we are entering a new normal, and as we all know, I mean, look, I live in New York City, right? And, you know, although the economy will, will reopen in 2021, I don't expect every office space to be filled in within New York City. And there's a new normal. I mean, people are going to be working more from home. So, you know, things like technology or fintech and all those types of allocations and investments over the decade ahead will be very important. And energy related will be also very important ways. So when we enter into these new normal outside of which everyone is speaking about and which, which we are passionate about as well, you know, ESG or sustainable investing are all types of sectors that will be really important for the decade ahead. And again, I mean, you know, we're experiencing now what we consider a new normal. I mean, I do think things will go back to sort of sort of normal in the economy, if you will, but it's going to take some time. And there'll be some aspects of the market where everyone not doesn't go back into the office. So, you know, we have a new administration. So all these things like energy efficiencies and technology and, you know, sustainable investing will, will all be very important going forward, particularly as it's the current administration that we're under. Yeah. And then just in your conversations, not only with clients, but also colleagues of yours as well, and looking at you know, the emergence of the, the the crises that we've had over the last uh, couple of decades, do, do clients seem more or less pessimistic now than maybe they were after 08, 09? And just give us uh, you know, some things and reasons why people should be encouraged and positive about uh, the recovery from this episode and then just for the, uh, the years to come, why they should be uh, optimistic as well. You know, they, they actually are more optimistic now because because remember, when we look at the 08, 09 recovery, First of all, household balance sheets, right? Your, your household debt to income was much weaker then than it is today. Companies were much more leveraged in that scenario than they were today, even pre-COVID. So remember, because this, this was an event that we consider no one's fault and the overall economy, whether it's the household or corporations, because of certain things that occurred after the great financial crisis, these, they, they were much in a better shape, in a much better position. So there is a level of more optimism, you know, this time around versus, you know, the GFC, not to mention the fact that the reaction from the Fed, the reaction from the government was so fast. So they, they really, I mean, when you look at the global financial crisis, it took them almost 10 months before they implemented almost any, just to start the, to implement is really, whether it's monetary or fiscal. Here, it came very quickly. And it did because it was a global pandemic. This You can't point it to 
like I said, over leverage or, you know, not checking, you know, having someone own five houses when they shouldn't. So this is something much different. And I do think that there is an optimism in terms of the reopening of the economy and things being, you know, really going back to what they were. However, there are a few sort of alterations that I that I think investors recognize. And, and one of them, from what I said, I mean, whether it's office space or retail or a mall or things that may lag the recovery. You know, there's certain sectors that we think will do, like travel and leisure might recover much quicker than a retail store or a mall or that restaurant. You know, but overall, they I think the benefit of having both monetary and fiscal stimulus there and committed, you know, we do think the economy will recover, particularly in the second half. And we've seen this given the revisions of you know GDP, which are almost six percent now. Okay, so they've really revised GDP higher because of all the stimulus. So I do think that investors have a positive outlook. But again, they are, as we know, they are a bit, bit cautious given how well both fixed income and equity have, have performed. They're not staying in cash, but they're staying diversified, not only in terms of product, but also region. And that's really the best way to sort of enhance your total return without taking on too much risk. Yeah. And that's just such a great point to end on, because I think just as a reminder, you you started off our conversation by describing what we've seen here recently as really as a as an exogenous event. You know, it was kind of like a meteor that came out of nowhere and hit the earth. And now we've all been kind of scrambling, figuring out how to best uh, navigate this new environment going forward. But to, even to your point just about reopening, I mean, I, in my own conversations with clients, I've heard more and more about how people can't wait to get back to some degree of normalcy again, whether it's traveling, eating out, shopping, you know, uh, people have already started thinking about how they're going to make up for quote unquote that lost time that they've had this past year. So I would just think from a consumer perspective, there's just so much pent up demand that is going to reflect itself in the economy going forward. So uh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of reason to be optimistic ahead to say the least. Well, Leslie, I just can't tell you how much we appreciate your time uh, in uh, sharing with us your thoughts today. I just want to remind the audience that if you ever have a question for Leslie or anyone else on her team, please contact John or myself, and we'd be more than happy to uh, get those questions over to her. But uh, we really enjoyed the time. Leslie, thank you so much for uh, joining us. Thank you. I appreciate it. And uh, we certainly hope that you and the audience continues to remain healthy and safe and certainly uh, uh, look for- looking forward to a 2021, certainly better than the year that we had last year. So thanks. Absolutely. Thank you very much. 